The year is 1963. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. Welcome to My Marvelous Year. And an expert, that'd be Dave, me, cover all the essential Marvel stories from its origin to today. This episode will be covering the first part of 1963. So we've got 10 comic book stories here that were published in 1963 to get through. You can find all the stories we'll be reading as part of the My Marvelous Year Club in the show notes, as well as at MyMarvelousYear.com. So the first issue that we read today was Fantastic Four number 10. This is published in the early part of 1963. And right off the bat, uh, one thing I'll note about 63 is we read a lot of Fantastic Four, as we did last year. Again, it is the linchpin of the Marvel Universe throughout the 60s. Yep. And Zach, I don't know how you feel about this, but I I thought this year was very, very fun. I think this is one of the more underrated. And like if you're going to enjoy... 60s fantastic four this year is a real litmus test because it's it's wild <laughs> like it's nuts. yeah i think fantastic four definitely found its footing this year and, and it, i mean it's going to continue to get better but th- this year was very good i don't think uh we read a lot of spider-man this year too and i love spider-man it started to it, it started to establish some stuff but i don't think it quite found found its voice yet but we'll get into it yeah for sure i I think fantastic four is more finding its voice like you're saying so issue number 10 has such a good cover it's got uh stanley and jack kirby with their backs turned facing the characters and it promises that they'll be in issue which they are and i think we talked a little bit about the sort of meta um approach of marvel comics in 62 like you've got you know johnny storm the human torch reading issues of marvel comics that continues in this issue in mind-boggling ways and it's a lot of fun yeah yeah it's 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 pretty wacky yeah so basically what happens is we we come onto the scene we got the fantastic four uh you know doing their bit what would you call it um in fighting they're they're fighting as a team they actually start out exper- reed is doing experiments on sue's powers which i really liked as a as a concept that's a good point because yeah. they're still trying to figure it out they're trying to figure it out and it kind of grounds the powers as something that's happening to to real people mm-hmm. you know it's not just a given that these have they have these powers they don't fully understand them they're still working on figuring them out which i appreciate you know i, I feel like probably older superheroes just had powers and they accepted it it was not about the experience of having powers it was just about taking those powers and using them to do good yeah and in a lot of ways too it's about the science of the powers right like this is a yeah. you know they were bombarded with cosmic rays and reed is a scientist so he's trying to understand this so basically as they're figuring this out they're kind of you know they don't really have any big bats coming for them and that will change as we have in the offices of stanley and jack kirby the return of dr doom where <laughs> stan and jack are literally talking about him and they're basically like, oh, man, Dr. Doom, he was cool, huh? Too bad he flew off into space. Too bad we wrote him out of the comic. Yeah, too bad we wrote him out so early in uh, in Fantastic Four issue number six. And then Doom walks in, 
you know, like pops his head in the door like, hey, somebody say doom. And there he is. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, you know, he threatens Jack and Stan and he shows them his true face. And they're absolutely horrified by the scarring, which is a really nice touch. Um, he threatens them by smashing an ashtray or actually. Oh, he lasers it. Yeah, he lasers the ashtray, which is it's not that threatening. He lasers the pants off that ashtray. But uh, yeah, it's it's awesome. Um, and basically, he threatens Jack and Stan and says, all right, I need you guys, you know, if you want to survive. Um, and, and they were struggling for a plot, too. So this, this really helps them out in some ways, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, good timing. So he says, all right, you guys need to call Reed Richards. Tell him you want to come, him to come down and talk about the next issue of Fantastic Four, which, again, I've... I'm familiar with narratives where there are like there are comics in the Marvel universe, but they are not telling the story that's literally being told in your hands. They don't you know they don't quite they don't quite make that clear whether or not like Stan and Jack Kirby are somehow these omnipotent beings who are like mm-hmm. creating the world around them, or if they are just collaborating with the Fantastic Four to like turn their stories in the Marvel universe into comic books within the Marvel universe. Right. There's that kind of blurred line there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's all pretty amazing. But Stan and Jack do they do cater to Doom's wishes and they call Reed. Reed puts on his stretchy suit mm-hmm. and wanders on down to the offices of Lee and Kirby on Madison Avenue in New York City. And their Doom kind of jumps him and surprises him. He captures him. He tells him that when he was flung into space, he ultimately literally rode a meteor <laughs> like a like a beach ball through space <laughs> and landed on an alien planet uh there's this weird alien civilization that to my knowledge is like never heard from again in marvel um and basically doom from them he learns all sorts of secrets but you know being doom takes their power and learns how to uh transform consciousness between bodies uh, dave you're skipping the most important point is that the Am alien I? race, I think, was were called the Ovoids, and they all had enormous egg-shaped heads. And yes, okay. It is yep. incredibly silly. <laughs> right, it's it's quite silly. It's not a surprise that they didn't come back. Yeah, good point. Ovoids are, are desperate for a reappearance here in the in the coming years, I'm sure. But um, so Doom Doom learns how to do this. He captures Reed, and he uh, does you know a little body sna- or body uh, body snatching. Right, it's a little Freaky Friday situation. Yep. Doom puts his mind into Reed. Reed's mind is stuck in Dr. Doom. And Doom thinks this is hilarious and, and awesome because now everyone's going to think he's the big hero. And he's everyone's going to think that Reed, in his mind, is the evil Dr. Doom. Right. So they basically, once they switch, the Fantastic Four come in and they beat up Reed in Doom's body. They show the Fantastic Four um, all heading over to doom i think this is when that is and they just have this little interstitial with the other three i don't know leaving the baxter building and there's this one panel where where sue storm is swarmed by some fans and this guy like corners her and says something like how about a smile for your biggest fan sweetheart (laughs) and and she just goes invisible to get away from him and i like she actually deals with it in a, a very like when i first read it i was worried that they wouldn't uh that this would be like somehow normalized or something like telling a woman on the street to smile but uh you know sue sue storm disappears and says get lost repulsive it's such a good quote uh, hey you know what that happened to me this week it was very strange i was walking uh i was walking to a pharmacy down the street from my house and it was like mm-hmm. just after dark and i passed a guy in the parking lot of cvs who passed me and as he passed me he said hey why don't you smile <sighs> 
I, I don't know. I, Did you have Get Lost Repulsive in your back pocket? No, I just said no. <laughs> I didn't have anything else to say. Like, I was so unprepared for it. I mean, yeah. you know, it's kind of like my privilege as a man, not having to worry about men telling me to smile on the street. But I didn't think I was particularly that, scowling. But That's wild. Telling strangers to smile in the parking lot of pharmacies. <laughs> it's such a weird behavior. And I do. I love Sue's response. Yeah, get lo- yeah. I, yeah, I wish I had read this first so I could just tell him to... Lost repulsive. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. Yep. So the Fantastic Four, thinking that they've captured Doctor Doom, um, kind of return to their headquarters in the Baxter building, and they uh Sue, Ben, and Johnny Storm, Human Torch, all see tiny zoo animals <laughs> running around their apartment. They're like, What is going on? Oh, this must be one of Reed's experiments. And then <laughs> as as they're, you know, finding and capturing and picking up all these tiny like elephants and bears. Um, ben Grimm's reading a newspaper with the headline, Zoo Animals Missing, <laughs> which is like pretty amazing uh, on the nose clarity yeah. there. Yes. And they're like, Reed, what are you doing? Why did you capture all these tiny animal or animals and turn them tiny? That's, you know, kind of criminal behavior. And Reed explains the most mumbo jumbo science and and it's like evolution combined with the powers of reducing someone. So basically what he says is he's building a reducing ray. He tested it on the animals, and he tells the Fantastic Four that I'm going to make you tiny, and then when I make you big again, your powers will be even better, right? As they get smaller, their power level remains the same, but just in a smaller packet, right? Kind of like Ant-Man, actually, I guess, like that, right? Like, he gets small, but he still has the strength of a full-grown man. But then, when they get large again, their power level will increase with their size, which, yeah, whatever. I mean, it doesn't need to make sense. It doesn't need to, and it doesn't. <laughs> but yeah. the important thing is the Fantastic Four super buy it. They instantly oh, yeah. are like, I'm going to go first. Ben starts punching walls and trying, like, literally trying to punch the torch to get there first. <laughs> yeah. Susie's like, okay, ladies first, guys. What are you doing mm-hmm. here? You're acting like children. Yeah. And Reed's like, don't worry, don't worry. And Doom is literally lolling at all of this. Like, he is having a great time. He thinks it's hilarious. Doom or... Reed Richards in the body of doom keeps trying to convince them like, hey, I'm Reed Richards. Don't listen to them. And like giving pretty good evidence. And, you know, meanwhile, Reed Richards with doom inside of him is like cackling and twirling his mustache and they just are oblivious. That's a good point. That's a good point. So doom has doom, a.k.a. Reed in doom's body has been trapped inside of a dome. Um, Doom in Reed's body leaves him there with, you know, a limited supply of oxygen Reed escapes and the Fantastic Four confront him once again, where, you know, Reed basically keeps making pleas saying, no, guys, it's me. You know, trust your instincts, Ben. You'll know it's me, which eventually begins to sink in because mm-hmm. Dr. Doom would not plead like this and it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't sound like this at all. And Dr. Doom and Reed Richard's body can't help but just like wax evil. Right. Exactly. So to finally test this once and for all, Johnny Storm creates a mirage of dynamite, which Human Torch's powers in these early years are wild. They go off the charts. He gets to do anything he wants. Yeah, at some point in one of these issues, he makes a lasso out of flame to pick up Mm -hmm. a wallet, I think. Like just to pick up a wallet (laughs) off the floor. Without burning it. He says he's like, no scorch marks. (laughs) Yeah, he does some crazy stuff. But here he creates a mirage of dynamite. And the Doom body dives on top of it saying, I must save my teammates. Mm-hmm. And the Reed body slithers up a pipe <laughs> to escape. Watching <laughs> watching that Reed Richards just like, yeah, snake his way up a pipe out of the way is very good. 
<laughs> right. So yeah. the team finally realizes, okay, re- this Reed was telling the truth inside Doom's body. The consciousness switched back. And then ultimately, when confronted, Doom is forced in front of his own re- uh, reducer ray. And he is turned super tiny. The machine goes haywire. And his plan to reduce the Fantastic Four to nothingness, which, of course, he was never going to superpower them, um, it backfires and it turns him tiny to the point that he disappears. So once again, Fantastic Four number 10, we have an issue ending as Fantastic Four number six did with Dr. Doom seemingly gone for good. Mm-hmm. I, there's a, there's only one other detail I thought I, I wanted to point out here, which is uh, Dr. Doom has these little gun fingers in mm-hmm. here, and uh, he calls it his sub-miniature transistor atomic blast gun. Stanley loves his science word salads. He sure does. And Doom is great at naming things. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty pretty fun issue, that, that meta context of Stanley and Jack Kirby. I, I don't know if it ultimately adds much, and that doesn't go anywhere. And I mean, thankfully, that doesn't go anywhere, right? I don't they don't do too much of this in the future, I'm hoping, because it does kind Which, of... Which? Uh, like, oh, the meta-narrative? Yeah. Um, you know, they would they would actually roll it back from here. Like, I would say this is the the most intense that I remember mm-hmm. getting for a good long while. Um, Stan and Jack do show up later at, like, the wedding of... Of Reed and Sue, which we'll get to, you know, later in the 60s, like they still throw themselves into the comic, but I don't remember anything that is this like specifically them creating a comic and a character walking into their offices uh, too often. I mean, it's good because it kind of loses its grounding. So next up, we read Amazing Spider-Man number one, which is a continuation of Amazing Fantasy number 15, where Spider-Man premiered and apparently was so popular that they immediately gave him his own bi-monthly, at this point, comic book. Yeah. Uh, it starts out immediately after the ending of Amazing Fantasy 15, with Peter Parker's in his room right after apprehending the criminal who killed Uncle Ben, and he is kind of fuming about his role in Uncle Ben's death, that he didn't do more to stop it, and that it he feels responsible for it. Uh, he goes downstairs to find Aunt May talking about money troubles. And I think literally like the rent collector is at the door <laughs> asking, yeah. asking for rent. You know, the day Uncle Ben dies, <laughs> the rent collectors come come knocking, uh, which makes Peter feel even more guilty because, you know, now, now they're left with no source of income. He briefly considers criminality, uh, but then decides to um, capitalize on his powers by going going back on tv or, or having a show yeah he's actually not that far removed from where he was in amazing fantasy yeah. as far as like cashing in on this new spider-man persona with the exception of he now feels a tremendous amount of guilt right over that, uncle ben's death his anger is now directed inward rather than out at the world here right uh, right i think that's the biggest difference between pre-uncle ben's death and post-uncle ben's death yeah it cuts to j jonah jameson writing an editorial uh his first anti-spider-man screed which the headline just reads spider-man menace (laughs) which is obviously a tagline that has followed spidey throughout the years and is uh it really perfectly sums up what jonah's gonna be Mm -hmm. for spidey and i think in a lot of ways this first issue amazing spider-man number one it's it's really about spider-man's pr problems Mm -hmm. right it's about like what if you're trying to do the right thing and the world says you're a you're a criminal, yep. you know, and J. Jonah Jameson, like he's positioned as I don't know, I think when we read it now in 2018, when we're recording this, like a newspaper man writing a column, it's like, OK, big deal. But it's like, no, he's positioned as 
the editorial voice of the city, essentially. Right. Bas- like he basically, has a ton of reach. you know, the, the New York Times. But even bigger than that. Yeah, right. Yeah, the Daily like, Bugle seems like a you know monopoly over the news in the city. And I will mention they are not yet called the Daily Bugle. Oh, I didn't notice that. I, I think on the tower, they call it, um, I think it's like Now Magazine hmm. or something. Oh, like okay. they don't actually use the term Daily Bugle in this issue yet. Yeah. Well, they don't use the term Daily Bugle. They also don't even use the term Peter Parker consistently. Because at one point, Stanley writes... We know him as Peter Palmer, but the world knows him only as Spider-Man. Yeah, right, yeah. Which is good. Like, even in, in issue, he's still not consistently named his characters. And he does do the Spider-Man with a hyphen in the middle and without the hyphen interchangeably throughout the issue. Yeah, that changes all over the place. <clears throat> I noticed Jonah in his Spider-Man Menace headline goes no hyphen. A real slight. Not <laughs> adding insult to injury there. Oh, so Spider-Man gets a check for um, putting on a show. He gets a big payday. He goes to get the check and they ask who to write it out to. He can't have it written to Peter Parker, so he just has them write it out to Spider-Man, which he then takes to the bank and they won't cash because he has no identification. Yeah. What he should have done is created a Peter Palmer alter ego just for (laughs) banking purposes. Yeah. Uh, There's still a little bit of, there's still a few scenes of Peter Parker at school being bullied, but in comparison to Amazing Fantasy 15, he doesn't take this quite as hard. He's still frustrated by it, but he's not full of rage over over the other kids. Who Flash comes into play here, which becomes his kind of like main rival at school. But at first, I think they just call him Moose. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's the same guy, but it's drawn pretty much the same. He's just a big blonde jock. Uh, and I always thought Moose was different. He might be a different guy. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, that's actually kind of an interesting question. But he's he's obviously the Flash persona, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and at one point, Peter Parker insults Moose by saying, "Well, at least my brain isn't muscle bound," which I thought about for a long time, and I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what that means. But they also have some pretty. They have some pretty good insults for Peter Parker as well. You know, he's depressed at some point and they say something like, uh, oh, he just looks like he lost his favorite test tube. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. He's the science nerd. I mean, they do have the scene of, you know, it's all the kids in high school wearing what would be a common 60s outfit. And then you've got Peter Parker in full lab coat and vest and tie mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> working with his test tubes. But it helps it helps Peter Parker at this point to have this kind of secret knowledge, right? Yeah. He's like, oh, if only they knew how mm-hmm. cool I really was. And he's less bitter, I think, as a result. There's, there's a little plot here about he goes to the Baxter building looking for a job. He sees the Fantastic Four as legitimate superheroes who are out and open in the world and accepted and loved by the city as opposed to him who the police don't trust him the citizens don't trust him he goes there and through some misunderstandings because he breaks into the baxter building they have a little Mm -hmm. fight um until he gets to gets them to understand that he's just there for work but the fantastic four tells him they collect no income. They just, this is a nonprofit organization. Uh, so he webs off. Yeah, it's a real, uh, March 1963, which is when this issue was released, is a really big year for Marvel Universe crossovers. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you really, you know, 62, and, and really you get so many origins and so many starting points throughout this. But here we get Spidey. You know, he's on, it's on the cover, right? He visits the Fantastic Four. Yep. So already we're bringing these things together. And then the same month you have the Hulk who was pushed out of a magazine mm-hmm. by Amazing Spider-Man, we should note, right? Incredible right. Hulk gets yeah. canceled, so Amazing Spider-Man can launch, and Hulk shows up in the issue of Fantastic Four we're going to talk about next. So you get all these characters coming together and playing together in a way that's clearly like, okay, this is shared. These are these beings are occupying the same world. Uh, the end of the first story here has J. Jonah Jameson's son, John Jameson. He's an astronaut. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson really 
compares him to Spider-Man because he's a hero and he shows his face to the world as opposed to Spider-Man who hides his face behind a mask. John Jameson, JJJ's son, uh, is in a rocket launch and the missile, instead of entering orbit, starts to plummet, uh, plummet through the sky. So Spider-Man goes to help out with this by hijacking a jet plane. He, he convinces the sci- military scientist to give him the module that needs to be replaced on the shuttle that's hurtling through the sky. He goes to a military base and convinces a soldier to fly him into the sky. And the jet goes up, he webs himself to the shuttle and replaces the module and saves the day, saves the astronaut. Yeah, and there's there's some interesting things here where, so Spidey's he's helping, right? He's a hero in that he's saving um, J. Jonah Jameson's son, mm-hmm. the astronaut's life. Right. And, and that's good. But then Jonah immediately turns around and writes a headline that this newspaper demands that Spider-Man be arrested mm-hmm. for this behavior. So Spidey's thinking, I did this amazing thing. Surely my, son. my public relations. Yeah, exactly. Um, but actually the opposite happens. And it actually raises... Again, like I don't, <laughs> I don't very often side with Jonah, but it raises an interesting argument of like, well, he is acting unauthorized. He is breaking and entering. He is stealing things to do all this. It's kind of ahead of its time in questioning, like, you know, it's a little bit like who watches the Watchmen? Like, mm-hmm. what gives you the right to do all this? And you can see Jonah's argument taking shape, even if it's clearly like he just saved your son's life. Have a little empathy. Mm-hmm. Um or, yeah, don't, or, don't get me started on the, like, inherent fascism in superheroes. <laughs> right. But, yeah, right. We, but it's like, it's yeah, even, we, we don't even want, raising we don't those get questions. To go down that wormhole right now. But No, we don't. We don't. But the fact that Santa Jack were even like. Well, you know what? I, I, I feel like you might be giving him a little bit too much credit because J. Jonah Jameson rationalized it by just saying, who knows? Spider-Man probably sabotaged it before so that he could be the hero. <laughs> I, I don't think yeah, it's okay. so much of a. a I mean, that, that's an interesting thing. And I, I, I think that is worth talking about and it's interesting when author comic book writers acknowledge that i, I think this is just J. jonah jameson being a crank and saying like you know refusing he to is give... also just extremely petty and grumpy yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> there's yeah. that for but sure that, that's definitely an interesting point yep uh there's a second story here i'm going to go over in brief uh, about the chameleon he's a master of disguise um not, nothing his powers he doesn't really have powers he's just good at swapping disguises on the fly and disguising himself as anyone he is stealing military and scientific plans to sell to the USSR. He lures Spider-Man away from a military base and then disguised as Spider-Man goes in and steals the plans and escapes in a helicopter. But Spider-Man goes, chases him. There's, you know, kind of an identity mix up where the cops don't know which Spider-Man is real. It's classic. It's classic chameleon. I mean, this is kind of like this is kind of the chameleon's one story, really. And I think as first villains go, like for the first issue, I personally... I'm not a big chameleon fan. I don't think very much of him. He's he's kind of a one-trick pony. He doesn't really have anything here except he, he doesn't even have shape-shifting skin. He just is good at makeup real quick. Yeah. So it's like he's I, – I think he plays well in like spy stories mm-hmm. or like stories of intrigue and he's kind of um, – but here basically it's really just about like – again, it's all PR. It's making Spidey look bad. It's making it look like he's committing crimes so that Spider-Man – he can't be the same kind of hero the Fantastic Four are, mm-hmm. where they're trusted and the government and military come to them and talk to them. Spider-Man can't be that because he's got all this doubt about like, well, wait, didn't he rob a bank? Or wait, didn't he hijack yeah, the, a plane? The end, the end of this issue ends up with all the cops like pointing guns at Spider-Man, try, trying to apprehend him and him trying to apprehend the chameleon, but then needing to escape after beating the bad guy, which does end with a really good panel. Spider-Man finally escapes the police 
and there's a panel of him running down an alleyway holding his holding his wrist over his eyes saying nothing turns out right sob i wish i had never gotten my superpowers <laughs> i like the idea that he says sob yeah 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 <laughs> It's very young romance, very teen romance, kind of just that that emotion right on the sleeve, yeah. Spider-Man and Sue Storm both <laughs> end up exclaiming sob a lot. The, the only other thing to point out is uh, a USSR submarine does emerge right in the Hudson Bay, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> to collect the plans from the chameleon. And then, you know, Spider-Man sees them and they're like, we've been seen, you know, <laughs> dive, dive. <laughs> Way to prevent the Cold War, Spidey. The other thing worth pointing out is the art here is Steve Ditko, um, who I think will stay on as the artist for Spider-Man for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. So Steve Ditko will do Spidey for the first, I want to say, 38 issues plus, give or take, an annual or two. Um, And again, like we talked about this a little bit in 1962, but there are, I think, nice differences between Ditko's style and Kirby. Mm-hmm. Um, we will get also get some of the other Marvel bullpen filling out here kind of as we go. Yeah. But uh, I, I actually really like Ditko's style of Amazing Spider-Man in these early issues. And that brings us to the second story on the list, which is Amazing Spider-Man number two. And this is where we get the introduction of both the Vulture and then to a lesser degree, the Tinkerer mm-hmm. as Spidey villains. And I think these Vulture stories are the ones that really... Um, that really stood out to me of the first two issues yep. of of seeing like, oh, this is what Dicko can do with Spidey in action and with a villain who is elderly, which is really quite the twist. Yeah, that's an interesting contrast. And this is a big improvement over number one because I actually thought the art in Spider-Man number one was kind of poor. But the, the splash page on the front, the cover and the first splash page of Spider-Man fighting the Vulture here are really great. Like some of my favorite panels this year. Yeah, definitely. It's good stuff. Um, and actually, this so this is the issue where it is uh, JJJ, um, J. Jonah Jameson Publishing, and now Magazine rather than Daily Bugle mm-hmm. on the building. Uh, I was actually wrong. The first issue of Amazing Spider-Man, they do actually the papers labeled the Daily Bugle. Hmm. So uh, semantics for, for those curious about the origins yeah, and namings sure. of these things. Um, but this is actually where you get that sort of building shot. So anyway, this is the duel to the death with the Vulture, Amazing Spider-Man number two. And basically, um, Pete gets the idea here to start making some money mm-hmm. by taking pictures of Spider-Man. Uh, this is where that idea sort of gets its origins, which is brilliant. Like I, th- I think this is very is one, good. I think this is one of the smartest, smartest setups that they did to have his Spider Spider-Man alter ego be the source of his income that he also needs to keep secret because it puts that tension there of like. He has his own source of income, but he can't reveal where he gets his pictures. But also he's working for the man who wants him put behind jail. Like they, they just immediately set up all these different points of tension and drama that work really well and clearly have legs because they've gone on forever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But, though Peter Parker does keep saying, he, you know, he keeps bringing these amazing photos to J. Jonah Jameson, who, you know, keeps talking about like, how'd you get these photos? Like our, our in-house photographers, he says, would get would give up their eye teeth for pictures like this. And Peter continually, at least three or four times in this issue, says, there's one thing you must never ask me, Jonah. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that's how I get my photos. And he, he says it in the most dramatic, suspicious way possible. <laughs> <laughs> like, at, at some point I read this later on, he says that again, like, JJJ, you must never forget. You can never ask me how... <laughs> how I get these photos. And it, it sounds like a man who wants to be caught. He's so insistent on underlining that, like, 
there's a dark secret to how he gets his photos. <laughs> he says it like he says it like maybe he killed someone <laughs> to get them. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And Jonah, Jonah being so crazy. I don't know just... what else he could be insinuating. There's there's really not much else that he would be insinuating except that he's either best friends with Spider-Man or he is Spider-Man. Those are the two right. options that he's hiding. So yeah, and it it's later that they kind of establish like, oh, you're friends with Spidey because they have to sort of answer like, right. yeah, you get all these amazing pictures somehow. Yeah, but yeah, here he's just super shady. Yeah, about yeah, it. yeah. Um, so, okay. So the rest of this issue basically continues with Vulture is on a wave of crime throughout the city. Mm -hmm. Um, he's stealing all sorts of diamonds and he's committing jewel thefts. And he, he, I really like how he's characterized here where he is confident and braggadocious. He throws a rock or like a watered up. Yeah. It's a rock with Mm -hmm. a message on it through the police headquarters window that reads, I shall steal the diamond shipment from under your noses and then signs it the vulture. Yeah, it, this this underlines something that a lot of these villains do. The best villains have strong, interesting, relatable motivations for their crimes often or for their their evil. A lot of the motivations here are just it's just pure like mustache twirling evil, right? And it it's yeah. just bragging rights and ego, right? So like he he even says like this theft will be all the more delicious since I warned them of it. There's no point in this except that he just wants more bragging rights than he would have gotten if he just stole them. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually, because the villains in Spidey, to this point, Mm -hmm. they are not really characterized with much depth. They're not given names. And, uh, yeah, we don't find out, you know, the Vulture's Adrian Toomes until a bit later, I don't believe. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, whereas, like, some of the FF villains, you know, there's this, like, Doctor Doom, you know, he's got a, a tragic scarring or um we talked in 62 like the gargoyle mole man man kind of have these sad backstories uh you don't really get that it is engendered to create some sort of like empathy and uh here you don't really get that so spidey fights the the mustachio twirling (laughs) vulture as it were um for the first time he loses pretty badly so then peter he you know he couldn't beat him by physical measures and this establishes one of spidey's greatest strengths he turns to science Mm -hmm. and he he peter parker goes back to his lab um and he builds up kind of an emp device basically Mm -hmm. figuring out that this is how he can take out the vultures seemingly unstoppable wings so the jewel heist that the vulture promised um, takes place. Everyone's looking to the skies for him to come down and steal the diamonds. Mm-hmm. And they're saying there's no way. You got helicopters. You got armed guards. You got everything. <laughs> and vulture, being clever as he is, he comes uh, from underneath the jewels. And he comes up through the sewer. He snatches the diamond. And then he sinks down into the sewers and flies away where Spidey chases him down, apprehends him using his science that he used rather than his physical prowess yep and uh and then he does you know i don't think he actually punches the old man at this point um that'll happen later okay. but uh yeah vulture spins out and he winds up in jail the the story is uh the story of the vulture is not that interesting but his powers are really the art really helps his powers kind of or his flying prowess uh come to life here yeah, it's a good one because you get spidey in air and in action mm-hmm. in a way that um kind of the space shuttle achieved in the first issue but here it's actually one-on-one which i think works better than and it's in it's in a city rather than i think putting him on a jet plane hurtling through the sky to a space shuttle seems out of place i i thought it seemed silly you know and that's with Mm -hmm. knowledge of what he becomes but i mean spider-man like on rooftops is such where he belongs right and having him fight across the rooftops like it's just yeah it's definitely a better fit 
Um, the the second half of the story, I'm not going to talk about in too much detail it's terrible. because, frankly, it feels it feels like a backup mm-hmm. to um, where Spidey came from, like Amazing Fantasy, yep. where it's this kind of weird alien story uh, with I, I don't know if you'd even call it a twist. You know, basically, it's someone you didn't think was an alien turns out to be an alien. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Spidey just happens to be in it. You know, it's it's not yeah. great. It has the character known as the terrible tinkerer, but he's not the Phineas Mason. Because you know, he's sort actually, of the developer. tinkerer turns out to be one of the aliens, right? Yeah, so I don't know if this is even... The real... I don't know if this is even Phineas Mason. Yeah, because he pulls off his connected. mask at some point. Yeah, it's not great in, like, Spider-Man fighting, you know, aliens, a.k.a. commies. It's not that interesting, and it doesn't feel Spider-Man. No. Um, this is, I would say, the most passable of the Spidey stories. Agreed. And, yeah. Um, yeah, honestly, it's just... It's one of my less favorite Lee and Dicko stories, mm-hmm. and fortunately, they would... They would turn away from this pretty quickly, yeah. um, literally by the next issue, which yeah. brings us to Amazing Spider-Man 3. So Amazing Spider-Man number three is the origin of Dr. Octopus. He's this genius nuclear scientist who has this rig around his torso with four long metallic arms that allow him to handle nuclear materials safely from a distance. Though the rig that they have for him is just a big piece of glass that's about three feet wide and reaches just over his head, and then his arms just reach around it. So it's it's not that much protection. Very secure. It's very secure looking. Of course, there is an accident in the lab, and he is blasted with nuclear radiation, which damages his brain and fuses the arms to fuses the arms to him, and allows him to have like total. I guess like a telepathic control over the arms. Yeah, it's honestly very. It's this is the Doc Ock origin. Yeah, like it comes and it nails it, and this is what you would see in like Spider Man Two. Yeah, the famous and and really well beloved, you know, two thousands early Spider Man movie. Yeah, like, he's still you know he's a hyper intelligent scientist who is just now kind of driven mad with rage and uh and you know and has this this control over the arms. Doctor Octopus starts. I don't actually remember what his like goal is here. He takes a bunch of he takes a bunch of scientists hostage. I mean, he is bragging that he is basically just going to assert himself as the as the supreme being on Earth. I mean, I, I think yeah. it's kind of a generic world takeover. Yeah, as far as I can tell, it starts with simple beginnings. <laughs> and of course, Spider Man comes in to stop him and gets resoundedly beaten back uh, by Doctor Octopus. In uh, Probably my favorite panel of this bunch, Dr. Octopus, Octopus, Dr. Octopus picks up Spider-Man by, you know, all four limbs. It brings him close to Dr. Octopus and then just slaps him across the face. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's a really good shot. And it just kind of shows that, you know, like he's just this pudgy scientist guy. It it wasn't meant to injure Spider-Man physically just his pride just slapping him across the face once uh, and it yeah, just shows kind of that, a humiliating defeat yeah it's, it's about humiliation takes him on. just dominating him and uh and then he just throws him out of the building and spider-man sulks away but mm-hmm. then again he spider-man comes up with some chemical formula he comes back and throws these test tubes at doc ock that fuse his arms together it's and adhesive so they stick together i i will mention that before before Spidey mm-hmm. gets the motivation to uh, whip this up, one one element I really like oh, yeah. is Spidey's very down on his luck, mm-hmm. and he's having the the old Spider-Man no more feelings. Yeah, he's going to quit. And yeah. yes, and he goes to high school, and uh, Johnny Storm mm. is the the star of a um, assembly, 
and he gives a motivational speech. Yeah. <laughs> so Spidey is actually motivated by the Human Torch's motivational speech, which I, I always like the dynamic between Torch and Spidey. It's really in the very, very early stages here. Mm -hmm. But Torch has no idea that he kind of keeps Spidey going as a hero and inspires him to go ultimately take down uh, Dr. Octopus for the first time. This, this also was the first issue, at least of Spider-Man, that had a letters page at the end. Um, is, is this the first like Stanley mailbox in Marvel Comics or just in Spider-Man? So they will they will start this year. I don't know if Spidey's is the first to come out. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I did read recently as we were prepping for this is that uh, apparently longtime Marvel uh, secretary and kind of all purpose uh, admin Flo Steinberg actually wrote a lot of these responses yeah. that were in Stan's name. I did not know that. Which is funny because it... Uh you read them and it feels so like distinctly Stanley's voice. But yeah. Turns out, yeah, maybe it was his secretary who, you know, like all, all, a lot of these catchphrases he's known for that she's integrating in and the, mm -hmm. the kind of slang he uses or that she was using. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So credit to flow yep. on, on that good stuff. But yeah, amazing Spider-Man number three is my favorite Spidey issue of the year. Mm -hmm. It feels like the most fully formed Spidey story and definitely is the template that the series will continue to use yep. um, as, as Spidey keeps getting better under the Stan and Steve years. So that brings us to the next story on our list, which is Tales of Suspense number 39. And this is the introduction of Iron Man. So again, like we've got these superhero mags are clearly taking over the Marvel line at this point, but you've still mm -hmm. got Tales of Suspense, which was, you know, kind of a... Um, you know, standard mystery or uh, twist comic. And in this case, the first half of the story is filled with the introduction of Tony Stark, one of the most popular heroes in the Marvel Universe post-MCU. Mm -hmm. So Tales of Suspense, it should be noted, is scripted. So it's got a plot by Stan Lee, as everything from this time period will be attributed. But there is a mm -hmm. script by Larry Lieber, Stan Lee's brother. And mm -hmm. this one has art by Don Heck. Who we have not, uh, who we have not seen. I don't believe in any of the issues we talked about. So we've been talking about Jack. We've been talking about Steve. Uh, here you get, you know, Don Heck, and it, it starts to elaborate. Like Marvel's got, they're starting to put out more work. They're starting yeah. to design more heroes. They need more talent. And yeah. and Don Heck's one of the earlier names you see. I don't like his stuff quite as much as uh, Kirby and Ditko, which is why you don't hear about him quite as much. But credit where it's due, you know, he he brings Tony Stark and Iron Man to life. I, I think I'd actually put him above Ditko at this point for me. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ditko just, as much as I love Spider-Man, Ditko isn't doing it for me much at this point. That'll change. I'll I'll make sure that changes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe it's, I mean, he's already gotten better over the course of three issues. It's seriously improved. Yeah. But I just feel like there's, there's a world of difference between him and Kirby. There's a ways to go. And there's, you know, there's production value stuff that'll improve too, obviously, as Marvel gets yeah. bigger. Um, so basically what we have here <clears throat> is you have Tony Stark introduced and he is a weapons designer. He's this kind of genius inventor. He's selling his weapons to the military. He's a playboy, playboy. who yep. women on the beach, um, you know, swoon over just seeing him, <laughs> right? He's got money and wealth and looks and everything. And it's the Tony Stark persona that you know. And then the story yep. by page two, um, it takes us our first direct exposure to Vietnam and yep. uh, kind of a one and awareness that the Vietnam War is happening here in mm -hmm. 1963, yeah. which always it's just for me, having obviously not lived through it, is um that seems early to me for Vietnam to be going. Mm -hmm. And it's you well, know, it's just starting to wind up. Right, right. So it's taken off. And um it brings us to the quote unquote jungle menaced by Wong Chu, 
who is a, as they say, red gorilla tyrant. So mm-hmm. we have the um, now the commies of Vietnam. We've seen the communists of the Soviet Union portrayed as sort of an obvious uh, villain. And, and now we have actually the Vietnamese communists as a sort of new type of stock uh, global villain. So, so once we're introduced to Wong Chu, uh, we get a cut to Tony travels to Vietnam um, with some military personnel to kind of oversee his weapons. He is literally walking through the jungle with them, which is like crazy dangerous. <laughs> I know all, all of Tony Stark's weaponry and technology is based on just transistors. The yeah. word transistors, he's creating transistors that make magnets 100 times more powerful. He has transistors that allow mortars to be you know, handled by a single person and just walk through the jungle. Transistors is another buzzword for, you know, magic technology. Yeah, the same way you're talking about radiation, transistors yep. is, is what Tony uses for everything in the early days. And, you know, he's so he's walking through the jungles of Vietnam. He is, of course, captured and uh, there's an explosion and he winds up with mm-hmm. shrapnel in his heart. So Wong Chu and his Vietnamese army, they capture Tony Stark. You know, kind of he's only got days to live, if that. And he is then thrown in prison where he is joined by another prisoner. Uh, this is Professor Yinsen. And together, the two of them say, all right, we got to we gotta work together to find a way out of here. Um, Wong Chu tells Tony Stark, you know, design me some awesome weapons and I'll keep you alive. Tony realizes, <laughs> like, one, I'm not a traitor. Two, you're going to kill me either way. So I might as well just build something for myself. And- the idea that Tony Stark has shrapnel in his heart that will kill him in a week. But he's also just up on his feet and pretty healthy seeming. He sweats a little, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of clutches at his chest a little, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, it's oddly manageable. But yeah, together with Professor Yinsen, they build the original Iron Man armor. It should be mm-hmm. noted that in the final stages of putting Tony in the armor and, and powering it up. And, and again, this armor is also designed to keep Tony's heart beating, right? So there's yep. a little bit of like yeah, yeah. iron lung support going on, mm-hmm. which is, I think, part of why he's called the Iron Man. Um, yep. But Professor Yinsen, in order to give him more time, he runs out into the hallway to distract the guards. He yells, death to Wong Chu, death to the evil tyrant. And uh, Professor Yinsen sacrifices his life so that Tony can escape as Iron Man. <laughs> and basically, he gets in the armor. I really love that his first steps, you know, he toddles like a baby learning to walk. Like he mm-hmm. he yep. doesn't have a feel for it. So there's kind of this, um, there's a learning curve to yep. using this this odd bulky machine. Uh, but then, you know, he he figures it out and he's got this armor on and he's kind of like, oh, my gosh, am I going to be trapped in here forever? Well, there's no time to worry about it. I've got to fight my way out of here. And he proceeds to do so. And he takes on the army. He gets shot at. He can do it. Um, he flies using magnetized suction cups is how they call it. Something like that. He reuses fl- reverse magnetism yeah, to, right. to blow away some, <laughs> some of the army. And, yeah, he chases down Wong Chu. He, I believe, traps him in a room that he then lights on fire and blows up with gasoline. I, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. think he lets Wong Chu live is, is really what happens here. Um, and then he, you know, Tony walks away wearing a trench coat over B- his eyes. Bemoaning the fact armor. that he will, yeah, bemoaning the fact that he'll always have to wear this armor in order to live because... Otherwise, the shrapnel will reach his heart. Right, but he does escape. Basically, if you've seen the original MCU Iron Man replace the Taliban with North Vietnamese, and this is very, very close. Like, yes, it's it's basically the same exact origin. 
except just a different a different setting, a different historical setting. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen the movie, you basically know this origin. And even I actually like that the movie even keeps his big clunky, like thick iron plate armor. Yes. Here, because right. this is not the Iron Man armor that you know and recognize. This is a big gray lumbering like tin can. Uh, you know, you get the feeling that this this armor is like a solid inch thick. Yeah. So uh, next we read Fantastic Four number 12. Uh, this one starts out with the thing. He's at a Beethoven concert with Alicia, his I don't know if they quite say girlfriend, but it's definitely like implied. It's just, you know, it's romantic. Yeah. Romantic. Yeah. Uh, the military marches by after the concert and turns and starts to attack the thing. The thing immediately loses it and just starts destroying everything around him as mm-hmm. he is wont to do. Um, turns out it was a misunderstanding. They thought he was the Hulk and attacked. And <laughs> He takes great offense to this as he should. So how dare you compare me to that ugly monster, which I love. He goes to the Baxter building, and he's still just in a bad mood. The elevator, like, won't open up for him, so he just tears the doors off and climbs off the <laughs> elevator cable. <laughs> like, the Baxter building needs a full-time team of repairmen just to deal with Ben Grimm's outbursts. Like, literally every issue has him tearing down walls or doors or machinery in the Baxter building. Yeah, I do think this is the year where, like, Ben is so obviously my favorite character. He's so funny. He's so ridiculous. Like I mm-hmm. love Ben Grimm in these in these comics. Uh, so they they show up, he shows up to the Baxter Building. General Thunderbolt Ross, who is the antagonist of the Hulk in the Hulk comics, shows up, and he talks to them about how he needs their help to stop the Hulk. He puts up uh, some projected images of the Hulk, and Sue vanishes, <laughs> just <laughs> instinctively instinctively goes invisible because she's so frightened of these pictures of the Hulk. Yeah. They do this thing that happened earlier with Dr. Doom where they're talking about how they would each stop the villain. Yeah, the, the Human Torch uh, talks about how he would defeat him. Reed Richards says he'd stretch himself out over the ceiling and drop down enveloping the Hulk. And, and this is something that happened in the last Fantastic Four too, where they each discussed and had cutaways to how they each imagined that they would stop <laughs> stop their villain. It's a little bit of like getting inside their heads just to show their fantasy of how powerful they each are. It's kind of an excuse to show like a one-on-one battle that might not necessarily actually Yeah, take I think place. it's just an excuse to draw some action shots, in- interject some action into the middle of the comic. Yeah. I like, though, it's just the three boys because Sue just says like, oh, I've got no chance against him. And then, uh, yeah, Sue says she's got no chance against him, that she's just along for the ride. And General Ross says, you know, well, oh, yes. a, a pretty lady will keep the morale up. And Reed, Reed agrees. It's the most sexist panel that we've hit so far, for sure. Uh, yeah, General Ross's quote here, I wrote it down because it's pretty bad. Uh, a pretty young lady can always be of help just by keeping the men's morale up. And then Reed mm-hmm. responds, that's just the way we feel about Sue, General. Yeah, the, the creeping like sexism of Sue being sidelined in the perpetual kidnapped victim here. Uh, there Also... In this same scene, and I don't even remember the context, but Johnny does call Reed Big Daddy, which I did not appreciate. <laughs> that is more slang. Uh, oh yeah, no, I know this is a total like this is a, a a time difference and like a cultural difference, but I still can't help reading it with my 2018 ears of just you know <laughs> calling calling your workmate Big Daddy. <laughs> um, so they. Uh, they go to the Fantastic Car, which has been totally redesigned. Uh, yes. It's like a four-part module flying vehicle that looked like four bathtubs earlier. And they even point out that, like, 
one of the Fantastic Four members says that, like, we redesigned it because we got so much feedback about that it looked like a flying bathtub, mm-hmm. which I think was probably letters to Marvel Comics saying that the Fantastic Four, the Fantastic Car looks lame and you should redesign it, which is, is pretty funny, like direct acknowledgement of feedback based Edit- editorial changes yeah they go to a military base where general ross kind of lays out the plan for catching the hulk uh the thing gets impatient bursts through the door literally through the door into general ross's office and then just to express his anger starts pulling phone books off of general ross's shelf and starts ripping his phone books in half and there's a really funny panel of general ross looking despondent over the loss of he says like Oh no, my bound phone books. His bound set of telephone books. <laughs> yeah. Ben, ben yeah. is so rude. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, it just, just shows the them. thing. You know, the thing is just constantly destroying things. General Ross explains to the Fantastic Four and says, you know, somebody's destroying military equipment. Hey, mm-hmm. let me introduce you to Dr. Bruce Banner. He's here looking into the case mm-hmm. as well. And this is, of course, where we get the connection to the Hulk. And you've got Rick Jones just following him around. Um, so basically, they enlist the help of the Fantastic Four to to figure out who is the wrecker as they're calling him and the yeah. implication is like well obviously it's the hulk or is it you know but really it is bruce banner's assistant carl court mm-hmm. and who I, they find out because he drops his wallet that uh that the human torch lassos up without scorching it right uh, they find his wallet and he starts digging through his wallet and finds that he is a card carrying member of the communist party yes <laughs> it's very funny just he's just carrying his like evil spy card in his wallet yeah yeah so there's two things here one if bruce banner ever has a, a sidekick or a scientist he's working with they're a communist mm-hmm. just don't even oh, ask yeah they're definitely yeah, a communist. Yeah. They're probably a spy um mm-hmm. and and also like this is probably the most red scare of um of any of these where it's like mm-hmm. uh, it's not even like a russian operative so much as um uh, you know, like uh, McCarthyism, like if they're a communist, they are evil. A communist sympathizer. Right. Carl Cord has been creating machinery to destroy American defense infrastructure. They track him down to an old west ghost town in the desert, which I think was just an excuse to like have a lot of destruction without it being in the middle of a populated town. The Fantastic Four tracks the Hulk down there. They kind of get into a big fight. But eventually the Wrecker shows up. They realize that they're wrong, that it was him all along. They they find Carl Court and, you know, subdue him. Um, it's not particularly interesting of a fight. But there are some pretty good shots of the Hulk wreaking destruction in this western town, picking up entire buildings and tossing them. And this this is one of the first issues where the Hulk shows his strength by... He can just leap for half miles at a time. So it just shows him bounding off. He also does his... Um, uh, this is also where the Hulk does one of his signature moves and does the like the Hulk clap yeah. to like send send sound waves out at them, which I think becomes like a mainstay of, of Hulk powers. Yeah. So like with the Hulk clap, he doesn't necessarily do the Hulk smash, but it, I mean, basically he takes out Human Torch, Mr. Fantastic and Invisible Woman with the Hulk clap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he slugs it out with the thing. And one thing mm-hmm. that is established here in FF number 12 is like, first off, you get the first battle between thing and Hulk. And I think it's interesting to note here, like, they're on very equal terms as far as size and strength goes. It's a really smart pairing right off the bat, because I'm sure there were a million Marvel fans initially who, you know, probably debated after school, like, who would win in a fight, the Hulk or the Thing? Right. And, you know, this brings the fight to you. Yeah. And that answer has become less interesting over time. 
<laughs> as the Hulk has gotten stronger and stronger. But here it's very, it's very equal. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, who, who would win in a race, Superman or the Flash? Yeah. You know, perpetual debate thing. Absolutely, absolutely. So the Fantastic Four, of course, save the day. They are celebrated at like a, you know, 21 gun salute or the military kind of thing. And, uh, and then the Hulk, you know, is basically left stranded, of course, not the last we will hear from him, although it is the last we'll hear from him for a bit because he no longer yeah. has a, a solo mag at this point. Yeah. So that takes us right into the next issue of Fantastic Four, which is Fantastic Four number 13. This is a personal favorite of mine for the year. It is the introduction of the Red Ghost, which I'll be honest, it only occurred to me reading this for for you know, the third time now that he is called the red ghost <laughs> because he is a red communist. I always assumed it was just sort of like color coding, you know, like yeah. the green goblin or something, right? He's not yeah. green because he's eco-friendly. Um, but here the red ghost is a particular label and uh, the cover promises the introduction of the watcher, which is of course this cosmic being who probably the bigger introduction here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, and I, I think, I definitely did, and I think a lot of Marvel fans um, think of his first appearance as much later with the coming of Galactus in Fantastic mm-hmm. Four 48 through 50. Uh, he's introduced in issue number 13, so that is way earlier in the Marvel Universe than I think yeah. a lot of people expect. Oh, one other interesting credit here, you have Stanley and Jack Kirby, of course, but you also have Steve Ditko inking this issue, which I mm-hmm. always find very interesting. And then you get Artie Simek on letters. Uh, Artie Simek is doing the majority of lettering throughout uh, the Marvel Universe for this time and, and will become mm-hmm. kind of an increasingly fun component as he starts adding a little bit of flair and style to the comics as they get bigger. Mm-hmm. You'll have to point that out because I, I didn't notice or I probably won't notice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We'll talk about that. So the issue begins with Reed doing some more experimenting to win the space race. Uh, he, of course, does not really tell the team what he's up to. So they just see a giant fire and think Reed's trapped inside. <laughs> he comes out in this wild looking you know, flame-proof suit, and then tells them that he is going to seek out his new experiments. He's going to fly into space by himself to go to the moon. The team says, no way. Uh, ben, in particular, <laughs> takes umbrage with the idea of, of Mr. Fantastic thinking that he can do things solo. He um, he mashes him, literally squeezes he, he Reed. Him up and just, yeah, packs him into a ball and then smushes him into a jar. While he's lecturing him about like the, the merits values of, of teamwork. teamwork, yes, exactly. It's one of <laughs> it's my really, favorite really panels uh, of of really of the decade. It's so good. Um, yeah. So yeah. So it's, it's worth noting that the space race being su- such in the forefront here that the Russians had already beaten us at this point with Yuri Gagarin, and 1963 is the year that they put their first woman in space. So they, but no one on the moon yet. As right. far as as real world goes, and that's what that's what we get here. So then we cut away to uh, communist Russia, and we meet mm-hmm. Ivan Kragov, the Red Ghost, not yet called the Red Ghost, and his soon to be super apes. So this is mm-hmm. a communist scientific genius. He has trained apes to work for him. There's an amazing quote as he kind of shows off his apes doing work, where he says, "No food for you yet, comrade baboon." And basically, he has this whole lab that is run by monkeys. It's pretty clear that he, Stanley, is using the apes as an analogy for, like, the USSR citizens here, right? Like, that they are underfed and that they need to, you know, work to be fed and they are lacking in dignity and human rights, right? Like, there's a lot of quotes here that are clearly, like, 
this is what communism is from an American perspective of communism. And uh, while it's a little overwrought, I do appreciate that Stanley is using analogies here that are not like so totally on the nose. See, I think that's actually like (laughs) a little subtle in that it's a little you can read it as just a bad guy with with apes which is kind of how i did i think the first time i read this the first time i read this i didn't pick up on that and then this time i was like oh yeah okay he's this is a you know somewhat it's not i don't want to overstate like you know the, the writing here like once you see it it's just like oh right yeah okay it's right there on the page but sure it is somewhat subtle and then he actually does kind of ruin it by later having someone specifically state it i think sue storm actually points it out like oh the apes are just like the poor citizens of behind the red curtain so you know he, he doesn't let it just sit he has to point it out yeah yeah definitely um yep. so both teams fly into space you get some nice panels of of literally them blasting off side by side obviously from different locales as they head to the moon uh the red ghosts ship here is um it's literally designed to welcome the cosmic rays that he had mm-hmm. read about bombarding the fantastic four so he has now you know basically with the fantastic four had that happen by accident the red ghost is like give me some of that he designs mm-hmm. his ship so that it will bombard him and his apes and it does and it turns them all it turns all the apes into his super apes where they have varying powers and it turns the red ghost so that he can uh turn transparent essentially at will well, it's not just transparent because Sue can turn transparent. He turns incorporeal. So he's transparent and also or intangible. I guess he's kind of got Kitty Pride powers. Early, early KP for sure. Yep. Um, so both units land on the mysterious blue area of the moon where they find a deserted lost civilization, which is why we haven't been able to see it before. And I love this shot. This I think this was like... The first big Jack Kirby, like, alien tech page mm-hmm. really, really shows what he's going to be really good at. The kind of, like, cosmic drawings that, uh, you know, that's kind of what I think of when I think of Jack Kirby. Kirby's um, machines, Kirby's cityscapes are mm-hmm. incredible. And yep. they'll get increasingly incredible. Uh, but here, yep. yeah, we do get some really nice indicators of that for sure. So the the Fantastic Four and the, the Super Apes meet up. Basically, the thing... Uh, finds them first as they kind of investigate. Mm-hmm. He fights the Red Ghost and his super apes, and they are stopped from brawling by the appearance of the Watcher, who shows up as this kind of giant cosmic being. And He's like a 15-foot-tall baby in a cloak. Like He does definitely kind of has baby proportions, where his head is too big for his body, but otherwise, and he's bald, but otherwise reads as human. He kind of, you know, having just read the, um, or talked about the Ovoids, Oval yeah. in, or earlier in the um, earlier in the episode, you know, he's not yeah. too dissimilarly designed, except he's wearing a sweet toga. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, he is a you know he's just kind of a giant, bald, tall man. Yep. And he explains his origins, you know, from distant space, and that he, uh, you know, he's seen it all. He's seen all sorts of civilizations. He's watched them. He's a little less like I can't act than he'll become. <sighs> he says that he can't. Which I think, I feel like this is a real through line of the Watcher, which he, you know, he asserts that, like, I am here to observe, not to interfere, but let me just put my thumb on the scale a little bit here. He's constantly (laughs) doing things. He's constantly defying his watching. Does he ever show up and just watch? Because I feel like every time I've ever read a Watcher comic, he justifies what he's doing and being like, "I, I am supposed to just watch, but... I mean, coming up to Galactus, he will at least, um, he'll be like, well, I can tell you stuff. I won't do a lot, right, but I exactly. can tell you stuff. 
He's like, I, I can't do anything, but I'll warn you. Yeah. Which is still not just watching. Whereas so. <laughs> here, he's like actively participating. Frequently. Right. He sets up like a battle dome <laughs> for them. Yeah. So let's get to that. So that's part four of the story. And again, it's still like Fantastic Four is still chaptered. Um, it's called Duel in the Dead City. And yes, it's this battle dome where he basically says, all right, Fantastic Four, you versus the super apes. And it's very reminiscent of some of the better, some of my favorite like 80s Marvel story arcs like Secret Wars. Um, or it's particularly reminiscent of um, the Shi'ar versus the X-Men in the Phoenix Saga, where, you know, they're pitted on this sort of civilization on an alien planet. We'll get to that in two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. In uh, in podcast time. But so anyway, the FF are, you know, faced off in this, this battle zone. Um, my favorite battle scene as they fight through this and fight through the super apes is Sue getting magnetized to the back of the magnetic ape. And mm-hmm. she says, he is holding me to him magnetically. I can't move. I'm completely helpless. Which, again, <laughs> like the powers of magnets throughout Marvel mm-hmm. Comics in this period are yeah. amazing, especially once we yep. get to Magneto. Uh, but I oh, really yeah. love this image of Sue just <laughs> glued straight to the back of an ape. Is this the first of, this isn't the first Sue kidnapping, right? I mean, she becomes the perennial kidnap victim. I think Doom in, in Fantastic Four number five. You know, captures her and then draws mm-hmm. out the Fast yeah. Force, probably the most yeah, famous example. Um, but this is another example, yes. Yeah. So the um, basically, as the teams continue to fight, the Fast Force try to get Sue back. The Red Ghost infiltrates the home of the Watcher, which I think is kind of a cool scene where he, you know, sees these cosmic visions that are just too much for his mind to comprehend. The Watcher appears and uh, basically says, you are but a flea to me, and kicks him out, which is a cool display of, like, the Watcher's power. All, all those displays are actually the Watcher threatening him. So the Watcher is like, I can cast you into limbo in infinite nothingness. I can cast you a million years into the future when all the galaxies have died, or a million years into the past to live in with the dinosaurs. Right. So he, like, just throws him for a second into all these, like, horrifying realities, which is, it's fun. Yeah, Totally. Totally. So the Fantastic Four triumph um, following this, of course, the the Watcher declares them the victors. And then he says that his mission is complete, that he'll be leaving the moon. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically Watcher's like, yeah, I'm good, which we find out is a lie. He maybe says that yep. just to keep them from invading his home again. Uh, the Red Ghost <laughs> does kind of escape the Fantastic Four, but his apes turn on him. Again, to your analogy of the, you know... The citizens who have the been people uprising, yeah, exactly, yeah. aggrieved uh, now turn against him. And the Fantastic Four mm-hmm. fly away and leave him on the moon. So uh, the last comic we read for this batch is the Fantastic Four Annual Number 1. So my understanding of the annuals are that they were like these, a yearly special event, a bonus-sized issue for their big comics. Uh, was Marvel the first one to do this here? Because I looked up like action comics and detective comics and saw that their annual started in the 80s. So is this a Marvel creation? I don't know the answer to that. Offhand. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that like action comics annual number one and detective comics annual number one were both like 86, 87, something like that. And Fantastic Four is the longest running of these so far. So first off, the uh, the first page, or actually the cover says, the longest uninterrupted super epic of its kind ever published. It sets the tone right away that you're in for a big issue. It's this one is it's I think it's about 50 pages long, which is about double yeah. of what you get. However, the back third of it is taken up with these big like 
what do you call it, pinups of all the villains of the Fantastic Four. So at least like 15 pages are just taken up without story, just with big colorful drawings of all the villains and, and some other stuff we'll get into. So this one, this one starts out with Namor, the Submariner, who we've talked about before. He was just reawoken by Johnny Storm back in one of the earlier Fantastic Fours. And he is back in Atlantis. He found Atlantis again. Uh, they had moved because their home had been accidentally bombed during nuclear testing. And he is the king of Atlantis. There are some beautiful Jack Kirby pages of full of drawings of Atlantis here. Like bright, colorful, um, bright, colorful characters. Tons, tons of great design. Really clear to read. Uh, these were like these were some of my favorite drawings so far. It sets up Namor as the king of Atlantis. And the two other main characters here are Dorma, who is like a princess of Atlantis, who is in love with Namor, and Warlord Krang, who is in love with Dorma. So you kind of get this love triangle thing going on. Isn't Krang the brain guy yes. from Ninja Turtles? He is, yeah. Right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I always think of that whenever I see Warlord Krang and kind of wish I was reading uh, about the Turtles villain instead. <laughs> yeah, it's a good name. Yeah. So it, it just sets up, sets up Namor as the king. Cut to the Baxter building where Johnny Storm is funneling heat in through a ventilation duct into Ben Grimm's bedroom where he, the thing, is sitting writing a letter to the Yancey, Yancey Street gang. Uh, yes. And the, his letter reads, quote, Dear Yancey Street gang, drop dead. <laughs> and, then, and then the thing says, no, no, that's too subtle. <laughs> and then he muses about... That perhaps he's going to mail himself, like put himself in a package, mail himself to the Yancey Street Gang, and then burst out, you know, to punch them. <laughs> yeah. So th- th- there's so much good characterization just in this in these like two pages where you get the torch pranking Ben, mm-hmm. you get Ben's feud with Yancey Street, which is amazing. Yeah, let's talk about that because I don't understand it. I know that it's a thing, but I don't know where it comes from or what it's based in. I feel like I'm missing some kind of context for this. Yancey Street. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't, t- so, we haven't talked about it before. Yeah, right. So Yancey Street is um, the street where Ben grew up, okay. basically. It's like it's like where he's from. And there's, you know, there's kind of these like kid street gangs, yeah. but not in the sense that we would associate like, like criminal gangs. gang behavior yeah. in 2018. Yeah. You know, it's like a little more, um, it's a little more like uh Bye bye, birdie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like sure. Jets and the Sharks kind of thing. I, I, right. Even less so, because I think they are like, they're pretty playful and pretty like non-aggressive it's like prank wars yeah yeah yeah. more than yeah, it's just, than it's true like, like you know, a bunch of kids in the neighborhood who at worst like have slingshots yeah and this is something that i think uh it more often than not gets tied to like jack kirby and his background because he grew up in new york city mm-hmm. kind of in in more of a um what would you call it like middle class lower class mm-hmm. uh areas yeah. where they would have more of these kid gangs and he he talks a lot in his biographies about like could just get in fights all the time, right? Yeah. Like about like these, you know, kids who are just kind of, you know, like nasty little like little buggers who are, you know, on the other street and they were out to get him and, and this and that. And I think that's where a lot of this like background comes from where it's almost playful, but it's also like Ben does dislike Yancey Street, but not in the way where he would like truly wish them. No, out. no, it's definitely like kind of a playful rivalry where he is just, you know, like frustrated and, you know, and kind of is constantly grumbling about them. I yeah. I did check out one of the other Fantastic Fours here. We won't get into it. But there's another Yancey Street moment where he opens up a package and a boxing glove on a spring pops out and 
hits him in the chin <laughs> from the yin It's perfect, yin. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so th- it is good. It's good characterization because it kind of, like, I mean, the thing is still definitely out of control uh, in a menace here, but uh, it does kind of make him a little bit more likable. He's not just, like, screaming and raging at everything. Like, him having a feud with a bunch of, like, 12 to 14-year-olds who keep pranking him is is pretty endearing. Yeah. Speaking of pranks, the Human Torch is slowly heating up the room, so Ben Grimm is just starting to sweat and not realize why, and then he sits down in his chair and it's super hot. He realizes what's up, he bursts through a wall, <laughs> he starts tearing down walls and throwing equipment, as he is as he's known to do. Uh, Reed has to come in and subdue everybody, and again, the thing this time calls Reed Big Daddy, which... I'm never going to, I'm never going to. common slang, man. I, I know. It's never going <laughs> to sit with me. Uh, <laughs> so Reed Richards tangles up the thing and the thing goes, Lego, you can't do this to the idol of millions, which is a funny little reference to, you know, their, their growing popularity in the world of comics. And a really good thing catchphrase that that has continued. Oh, really? Is that a thing? I just thought it was a funny line here. That is the things thing. And uh, he'll continue to refer to himself as the idol of millions. <laughs> There's even um the dance lot written mid-2000s thing solo series the trade is called idol of millions oh, wow okay i that's pretty funny yeah. i just plucked this out as a funny line um sue starts crying because all of her dresses have been ruined in the fight between the thing and the human torch she talks about her monsters dior and fifth sax fifth avenue dresses they were all original and she starts crying over the loss of them and calls all men beasts <laughs> she's not wrong but uh some serious product placement yeah on that yeah. one <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I wonder if they got a kickback for that. Um, I'm sure not. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> uh, Reed starts talking about he, there's been reports of sea monsters out uh, spotted by spotted by sailing vessels, and uh, they want to go. They've been asked to go on a cruise to investigate all these sea monsters. The other three members of the Fantastic Four are all like really incredulous, like sea monsters. It's probably you know hallucinations at sea and this you know. It, it's all hyped up, which is funny because like eight months ago, the thing walked a nuclear bomb into the mouth of a city-sized <laughs> sea creature. Which he did nuke, we should point out. He did carry a nuke into the belly. And then run out, yeah. <laughs> they go on this cruise. They see some sea serpents out at sea. They take a small boat out and are bubbled by, by a bunch of fish. Some fish shoot some bubbles around them and capture them, take them down to Atlantis mm-hmm. where Namor, Namor says, you know... Humans can no longer encroach on my territory, the ocean. Please deliver this message to the UN or else there'll be war. And he lets them free. Uh, the Fantastic Four go back and they go. <laughs> Reed Richards approaches the UN, just apparently gets to speak to the United Nations. He starts to warn all the other countries that Atlantis is on the verge of war if they keep encroaching on their territory. And then he brings a scientist up to discuss Atlantis's origins. The scientist talks about Homo mermanus. And he does have a skull of Homo mermanus right. just with him yeah, he, on hand. Yeah, exactly. Good prop, uh, good prop witness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, th- this this white, white-haired scientist with a beard comes up, starts talking about the origins of Atlantis and the Homo mermanus, and they're an offshoot of humanity from, you know, before we, when we split from the apes, they went underwater, and they had kind of a parallel history of rising civilization and war and... Um, it's like a five-page history of Atlantis, too. Like, this witness knows a lot about about Atlantis's history. He does, and I don't hate it because the art the art is really good here. And all every time Jack Kirby's drawing Atlantis here, it's really uh, it's really fun. 
Right. So he lays out this um, this history. He also talks about that there was an expedition expedition about forty years ago, where a princess of Atlantis was sent to sent as a diplomat to these humans, but she fell in love with the human captain of the ship. They got married. Uh, they got married and had a baby, which turned out to be Namor, who is half Atlantean, half human, and that allows him to breathe out of water, unlike the other Atlanteans. All this history is laid out. And Reed Richards says something like, We can't accept this threat, we'll have to go to war with Atlantis. At which point the scientist rips his wig and beard off, revealing that he is Namor. <laughs> just standing nearby. A great twist. I did not see it coming, because he doesn't look like Namor. No, I didn't either. It, he stands up. It's very Mission Impossible too. <laughs> yeah. Pounds his fists on the table and declares war. <laughs> that Atlantis is going to yep. war. And immediately, uh, Atlantis marches on New York City with planes and tanks and um with their entire army and they take over new york city they're careful to point out that there are no casualties that the atlantis takes over all of new york city but just disarms all the cops <laughs> i unlike say namor's golden age attacks where people very clearly are are taken and the lions <laughs> and all lost. the lions that he punches to death yes and, uh yeah so and i think this is to they don't want to make Namor a full villain, right? And if he just showed up and started slaughtering citizens, <laughs> that would kind of run counter to that. So I think yeah. they want to just be clear, like, this is a, a bloodless takeover. Uh, Reed Richards goes back to his lab, and all the Atlanteans are in, like, reverse scuba suits. So they have, like, diving helmets, but they're full of water so that they can breathe yeah. on breathe on land. Reed Richards devises some kind of contraption to evaporate all the water out of all these diving suits and then does so, which drives immediately drives all of the Atlantean army back into the water. It's a pretty quick invasion. You kind of get the gist. <laughs> like They took over New York City and lost it all within six hours. Mm -hmm. The Atlanteans are driven back, and Namor shows up to Reed's lab and starts beating the crap out of Reed. Literally, like, Reed turns into, like, a... Uh, was it called like a speedball punching bag? <laughs> like Namor, yeah. Namor's standing on like a long thread, and then Reed is like a ball that he's just beating <laughs> until the rest of the Fantastic Four shows up to stop him. Uh, Sue Storm is grabbed by Namor and kidnapped because Namor loves Sue Storm and flees into the ocean with her. There's a lot of plot here, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep moving through it. The Fantastic Four, the Fantastic Three, chase after Sue and Namor out into the open water. Namor has deposited Sue in a submarine with Dorma and Warlord Krang. And then he, the Namor leaves the sub to go up to the surface to fight the Fantastic Four. Yeah, they're, the rest of the Fantastic Four go to get Sue and, you know, to rescue her, of course. And obviously once, you know, Lady Dorma realizes, okay, Namor loves Sue. Not me. Then Krang sees that as his opportunity. There's a whole romantic thing going on where Krang's like, well, Namor doesn't love you, so surely you can can hook up with me now, yeah. right? To Lady Dorma. Yeah, that's how love works. And Lady Dorma's, <laughs> you know, get lost repulsive, yeah. <laughs> right? And then uh, basically they like throw Sue out into the no, ocean. No, Norma just smashes the window of the submarine to flood it. Oh, she's mad. <laughs> with water. Which she's is... mad. <laughs> right. Same result. Sue kind of floats out into the water and she's all tied up. So she can't, she can't do anything. She's trapped at the bottom of the ocean, basically. The Fantastic Three and Namor fighting realize that Sue is just drifting drowning in the water namor retrieves mm -hmm. her and they all kind of come together on they need to rescue sue because they all love her the same you know namor and reed both love sue and they put aside their differences to rush her to the hospital which namor does namor flies her to the hospital um 
and and basically like it, it once again is like Sue is the really the only thing keeping Namor from being a straight up villain. Yeah, where she is kind of his tether to to decency. Yeah, and to humanity. Yeah, he hates all humanity except for Sue Storm. Right. Right. And that's that's kind of the gist of it. He he leaves saying you know that they've come to an uneasy peace, <laughs> and uh, you know but things are not settled. This this is it's a long issue, but it's it's pretty fun. Um, especially like that Jack Kirby art really props this up just because you have all these beautiful seascapes of Atlantis and all the sea monsters and stuff, which the sea monsters, they're a little better. <laughs> I just, I'm on the record as not loving Jack Kirby's monsters, but th- these ones are a little more interesting. Uh, yeah. th- this issue concludes with maybe about a dozen pages of, uh, these big pinup pages of the Fantastic Four's villains, which is pretty fun. Um, uh, you just kind of get a rogues gallery of all the villains, even if some of them are you know, kind of forgettable, and, you know, you've got Doctor Doom and Namor, but then you've also got, I don't know, ones that I don't remember the name of because they're <laughs> pretty forgettable. Uh, yeah, it's really anyone who's appeared to this point, because, again, we only have... 12 issues. You know, 13. 13, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a fun, like, cutaway show- shot of the Baxter building that's really fun. It shows, like, mm. you know, the Baxter building with the walls removed, the outside walls, so you can see every building, and he has, Jack Kirby has labeled, you know, the science labs, the dormitory, the rocket pad, like... You know, you get that kind of hyper detail. And then there's also about four pages of questions and answers about the Fantastic Four. These are good. These are good, yeah. They're pretty fun. I feel like they're going to regret nailing down some of these details. Like, they set some real limits for, like, Reed Richards can only stretch X amount of feet. Uh, Human Torch can only torch for, you know, this amount of time, etc. And predictably, Sue Storm's questions are like... Uh, are pretty are pretty gross. Like they have uh, you know questions like, if Sue Storm gets married, will she leave the team? Uh, Stanley's response is just like, we don't know. Quote: No one can look into the heart of a woman. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Stanley, like just just talk to a woman, please. <laughs> it, they also say like they have their list of all their hobbies, and you know for like the human torch it's uh like sports jazz and cars something like that but for Mm -hmm. for sue it is fashion cooking makeup and romance novels (sighs) so pretty on the nose pretty on the nose but good issue all right cool so that is going to do it for the marvel comics first part of 1963 again look in the show notes for what to read next week. You can also find all the lists on mymarvelousyear.com. So we're going to release part two of 1963 on the 28th of January, followed up by a listener response episode coming out on February 4th, covering all the comics we talked about for 1963. If you want to have your thoughts or feedback about the epi- this episode or those comics, please get all those into us by January 30th. Uh, and we'll be reading a lot of those and talking about those on the show. And you can get that feedback to us at mymarvelousyear at gmail.com. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash mymarvelousyear, you can find out how to support the podcast and find some pretty cool bonuses and um, and extra content that we'll be making available, including our poll of the week. So we'll be doing a listener response episode for 1963. Right. And our poll this week is a pretty controversial one <laughs> that Zach came up with. Yeah. Uh, who do you think is more important to Marvel's success? In 1962, 1963, uh, oh, I, I would two extend years. it just to uh, just in general. Just in general, yeah, I think just okay, in general. Sure. I think the Stan Lee or Jack Kirby. Yeah, who yeah. You which, got? which one of who's these your, guys? Who's your pick? Yeah, the the art, the writing, or that you know kind of in between space. So I'm, I'm going to be putting up that poll today, the day the 21st when we release this, and uh, that poll will be open on Patreon until January 30th. 
I will we'll close that down. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, as always, if you can go to the podcast show on iTunes or Google Play, wherever you get it, and leave us a review and some feedback if you like the show, that will help us uh, increase our visibility for more listeners and more people to join the Reading Club, yes, which please. is, of course, great for bringing in more listener feedback. Yeah, especially at this early stage, it, it will really help increase our visibility and get us get us some listeners. Yeah, and if you want to see more about My Marvelous Year, uh, you can always go to comicbookherald.com, where I am the editor-in-chief and, and write and will post a lot. You can go to social, uh, Instagram account, Twitter, Slack channel for Patreon subscribers, and again, just look for My Marvelous Year. So we would like to credit here as well, uh, music, theme music for the show is by Disasterpiece. Thank you for the excellent intro, and we will see you next year. See you next year. 